it's a 45% increase in value. And then we were able to, with that appraised value, put a $1,912,000 loan on the property. Keep in mind, we paid $1,650,000 for it. We were able to get all of our original money back, plus an additional $262,000. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. Welcome back to another podcast. With me today is Jordan Maltek, investment sales broker with Essex Realty Group. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Drew. Awesome. I think his official title is director, but I recently had hired Jordan to sell two multifamily deals for me here in Chicago, and we figured it'd be fun to hop on and, and do a deal story. I'm walk you through kind of what we liked in the deal when we bought it, what happened, and bring Jordan in to tell us about the sales process and everything he knows about the buildings. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Great. I think most before I, we get into the deal story, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Jordan Moltak. I'm a director at Essex Realty Group. I sell apartment buildings pretty much west of the highway in the city. I live in Westtown, pretty much around the corner from here. And I'm really excited to be here and talk about the deals with you. Nice. Well, great. The In 2015, just kind of to start, we we had recently refinanced out a million and a half dollars just from some other properties we owned. And we were in the middle of doing this strategy where we would buy the properties. We'd identify ones where the rents were below market. And then we would, we'd set out to raise the rents, which then creates a higher NOI, net operating income, which then creates a higher value, which then at that point you can either monetize the higher value by selling the property, or you can now put a bigger loan on the, on that property. And what we were doing was the sort of the latter option there where we would keep all the properties, but we would refi out as much equity as possible. In 2013, we bought three deals and then had, and then in 2014, we bought another and we had refied out all the money on the second, third, and fourth one we bought right before these two deals came up. We were sitting on a million and a half dollars that we wanted to get into something. And then these two came across and they, their, the addresses is 1846 North California, which was a six unit that had been built in 2012. It was three years old at the time and the developer still owned it. And then the other property, 1701 North Kedzie, the developer still owned as well. And that was a nine unit. And what we liked about the opportunity was the rents were really, really below market. Like we'll get into this later, but some of these apartments, we, we raised the rents 20% the first year on individual apartments where they had rented them out. Most of these leases were in the winter, like 2013 or so. Then they just renewed them in 2014 at the same rents. And in Chicago, it's real seasonal um, in terms of the rental rates. I'm sure you've seen that, Jordan. It's it's kind of funny because in years past, if you were trying to rent a unit in winter, it was impossible. And I'm sure you saw that in that building. But I recently was talking to a buddy who's trying to lease one of his units right now, and he had four four different applicants come in. It's, okay, it's crazy I, what COVID's done to all, all of our markets. It's a little bit hotter here, January, February than usual. That's interesting. That I've at all costs. Now I'm avoiding having any units hit. I've been, I don't know how it's going out there. I made sure to have all mine between May and September. Well, that's what good planning does, right? We, anyways, just sort of looking at all those factors where the rents look 
we're low. And then what we were setting out to do was another deal where we could buy it, raise the income, and then refi the money out. So Kedzie, we bought that for $2.65 million. And California, we bought for $1.65 million. At the time for that area, those, I don't have the price per units in front of me, but everybody thought that was high because this maybe actually, why don't you tell us about the area? Logan Square is, it was once considered an upcoming neighborhood in the city. Let's let's go back five years ago, perhaps 2016, 2015. At that point, I would compare it to perhaps Brooklyn and New York City. It was one of those neighborhoods where a lot of artists and restaurant tours and everything in between would move to, to expand. And that's what Logan Square has been for Chicago. And, and it was an area where like a lot of times I've, articulated my investment strategy where I I haven't set out to buy in a necessarily in the growing area on purpose where I know a lot of people they'll try to buy like especially over in Logan as it got nicer going further west people would they'll just buy something in the path of growth where my strategy was actually just I'm only buying three or deals a year like find ones that are already in an established area the rents are below market and just realize the value now and this was the first deal that I had bought in a, it was sort of the, both of those though together where I was still doing my usual strategy, but it was also in a rapidly growing area. Right. 1846 California is at pretty much the mouth of the 606, which is the Bloomingdale trail for Chicago. It's a, a pedway essentially that connects the highway all the way west to Pulaski. And that was a huge benefit to California. And then a little bit more west, Kedzie, that was used to be considered a little bit far west for Logan Square, and it's it's unbelievable to say that's now core Logan Square. No, I know at the time we were actually when we got the deals under contract. I guess to talk about that, we this was probably the last building or two that we bought with a and we where we use an attorney drafted purchase and sale contract. Up to that point, every deal I'd done, I think I used an attorney drafted contract. But on the next one, I started using the car realtor form and I'm not an attorney. And there's a full disclaimer at the end of the podcast that everyone should check out. But I would, my personal experience was the car contract, the form contract way easier to use. on let's say a deal under 5 million bucks, you're filling in blanks. Everyone understands it. And then in Chicago, you can use, you have an attorney writer anyways, that it follows up after the contract sign where you can get any sort of changes or things that were missing put in there. That, that I remember doing because we spent a ton of time on the, and money on the contract. California was really easy to do the due diligence on. Super clean deal, not nothing to look at really is brand new, being only three years old. And same thing with Kedzie, except that that property, they had done some environmental remediation. So there were some things to at least dig through and figure out. And they were just getting their NFR letter, which... In different states, I'm trying to think what is in Illinois, the no further remediation, I think is what it stands for. Mm -hmm. And Minnesota, there's a different one that's, uh, I get them, it's hard to remember them from memory, but we were, I think we waited to get that letter. We had to do something um, to like prompt them to, hey, get the letter or something with that. But it was pretty, pretty simple deal. And we're buying brand new buildings basically. And to realize the value, all we have to do is raise the rents. What we did kind of going into the deal with our debt was... I know that I'm going to be able to raise the rent and then I want to put a new loan on it. Originally I was going to go with Chase Bank because they're very easy to use and you can do a floating rate product with them. At the time it was like three something percent and their prepay on it is 1% for the first three years. 
it, it was it had, the rate adjusts every six months, but I wasn't worried about that. I'm going to be in this loan for a year, maybe a year and a half, two years. Actually, we were buying this. This was 2015 September ish, and the not to be dramatic, but actually on the day I got married, that we got our loan commitment or approval, whatever their LOI, and they they could not get the 75% LTV we wanted. They just sent me one at 70%, and I'm trying to open this secure email my wedding day like what's going on with this and they dropped our they they couldn't get it approved at 75 because the price per units were too high for the area their their feedback and we should i should just calculate quite, the price per quite units. a wedding gift 294,000 a door on kedzi but the thing is it's brand new and then the unit mix on it it's all large two bedrooms or three bedrooms that duplex into the basement which means it's on two floors right the price per unit should be high Right. And I think that's where some people get mixed up about price per unit is that price per unit is corresponds, in my opinion, with the density and the amount of rent volume that comes out per unit. The fact that you're getting a building that was all two bedroom, two baths and three bedroom, three baths and three bedroom, right. three and a half baths, duplex units, you're, you're pushing out a lot more rent than a vintage six flat. Right. And a good way to kind of check if you think, oh, the price per unit feels high is you could think of it like, what's this price per bedroom? I've done that on, on some deals. And if at this deal, this is, we're running like a roughly probably 120,000 a bedroom. That doesn't feel high if you got a deal for, it's all one and two bedrooms, if that was the price per unit. And also price per foot. That's something we're using really a lot now on the bigger deals we've been doing to kind of compare because there's a lot of Right. Price per unit is just one metric. And, but they really got hung up on that. And then we pivoted. I, I asked for an, I just explained what was going on and asked for an extension. We would have closed with the chasing if we couldn't have got the extension, but they, they gave us an extension just at no, no cost. I just explained what was going on, communicated, said, I want to pivot. And I think, and I, the way I presented it, I believe, because I do this pretty often, like I'll, if you need to ask for anything in a deal, it's best to have completed all your due diligence and they know like this is the only thing we're being asked for not where like some people they'll find something in the physical inspection and they ask for it they say yes the bot let's say the seller but then they start reading the leases and there's a new thing then they got to ask again and then the seller gets tired and a lot of the a lot of those deals fall apart or it's not as convincing of a ask like if i'm the buyer if i go I need this extension because of my loan, but I also haven't really reviewed much on the property yet. So I don't even know if I'm proceeding or not. This is, I had completed everything. And then the explanation was I'm not really getting the loan I wanted through Chase. I want to start up a Freddie Mac SBL small balance loan. I can get the full loan proceeds that I wanted when I set out to buy this at this price, but I did all my homework on it. We're ready to buy. Just, we need 60 days to get this new loan. So they gave it to us and then we ended up picking the Freddie Mac, the most flexible prepay they have. It's this, it's this, it's this numbers are sequentially by year or it's 3% year one for prepay. Then it drops to 1% year two, and then it's zero thereafter. Knowing what our plan was that, and you have to pay up on your rate to get that where at the time it was 15 or 20 basis points more in your rate. You really got to think about your business strategy for that property, or I should say the strategy of the, what you're going to do with that asset with your loan. Cause if I wanted just the lowest rate, I could do a yield maintenance loan with Freddie Mac. And instead of adding 20 basis points to your rate, they take 20 off. Let's just pretend rates were just to make the math easy. They were in the threes, but let's just say it was 4%. 
I could get a 3.8% loan doing yield maintenance, or I could be at 4.2 to get the flexible prepay. It's a big, it's a big decision, but we knew the rents were below market. They had, I got the rents printed out here. I mean, they had over at California, three bed units renting there for 2,100 bucks. And we thought the market should be 25, 2,600. And Kedzie was similar. I mean, in terms of the disparity in rent, I mean, renting out two bed units, actually this thing I have doesn't have the unit mix and I'm doing it from memory, but renting out two beds for $1,700 and they should have been 2,000 bucks all day. The three beds, some of them rented out for $2,000 only. And those should be 25, 2,600. I think one of the <coughs> most important things about all of this and in, in, in all of your decisions about what you've invested in is that all of your investments and all of these properties that we're discussing and, and whatnot were things that you chose to pursue because they filled the niche that you were looking right. to invest in. Something that you've always capitalized well on is finding those buildings that are a lot nicer than others and seeing the lower rents and seeing that is where I can capitalize and that's where I can grow my business. Right. And at the time, let's say cap rates for the area, they let's say would be around a 6.0%, 6 maybe it was the start of where there were five cap deals, but those weren't this far in this part of town yet. In a real prime neighborhood in Chicago, we were seeing sub six cap deals. But right to your point, I'm looking at these going like, I don't have it in front of me what I thought I was going to stabilize them at in terms of a, let's say a cap rate when you raise the rents, the term yield on cost, so your stabilized NOI divided by your basis. We ended up kind of jump to your point where if the market cap rate was, let's say a six for these kind of deals, when we refied on the lender underwriting on Kedzie, we we're at a 6.56 yield on cost or cap rate. And then on California, we we're at a 7.67 like that. That's a great way to make money if you can find deals like that. And the most important thing is repeating that over and over again. And I think there's another deal that we could discuss as well that you did the same exact strategy in the same neighborhood, and it was another one of the deals that we did together. And Palmer, I think the, because I've done 14 or 15 deals like this now where I bought it, I've raised the rents, and then refied all my money out. We took originally, this is part of this original, this three million bucks our investor gave us. We went out, we bought $10 million of property. And right, we could have said, all right, great, that's it. Let's call it a day. Instead, we, as we created the value, we monetized it again, refied the money out, and kept buying more and then doing it again. And you have to be really disciplined doing these. There were deals that I passed on that would have been good deals, but it wasn't like a, sh a shoe in like this where I know for sure I can refi the money out. Because my attitude at the time was like, we just have this 3 million to, to work with. If I buy a deal I can't get the money out of, now we're, I'll use the term we're stuck. Like now we're, we're just, this was the last deal for a while in that bucket of money. And I think it circles back to a great thing that Gabe said is sticking to what focusing yeah. on your niche, your niches is well capitalized buildings that have exemplary finishes with lower than rent, lower than market rents. And the more you do what you're good at, the better you get at it. That's interesting. Most of the deals we bought were, were like that. We did do some rehabs and did buy some vintage deals, but it was, there was like this opportunity, the guy who built it, he's a really good developer, but other people are better at leasing than just based on how, what these things are renting out for, or he wasn't seeing the value in getting the rent higher. Like he was thinking of it more. I built this, this should be the price. Whatever I rented for may not matter. I don't know what he was thinking. Never asked. We, we end up closing on the property. It's late kind of October, November. 
And we get, I don't think there was any, there weren't any leases to do that year. Then 2015, we spent the rest of the year just every deal we buy, you do your physical inspection. There's just little stuff to do. And we always make a list and get it to our management company and get all that knocked out. And we spent time figuring out what the paint colors were and just doing all these little things. One thing in Chicago, that was another thing that I'm sure consult an attorney about, but we don't take security deposits and this owner did. Then we set out where we re returned all the deposits. There's so many, the laws are hard to follow around security deposits. Most people would tell you, don't touch those here. What we did is we gave the deposits back to all the tenants and had them sign a waiver indemnifying us, releasing us from liability. And then once they sign the, the waiver, we give them their deposit back with interest. We spent time doing that and it's interesting. Some people were skeptical, not many, but a couple were. We were, it's funny, you have to try to really convince people to take it back, but they don't confuse why. And you don't want to explain like, well, the laws are confusing and it's like toxic to touch these. We want to give it back to you. It's a tough communication between a renter moving out and a landlord about how much their security deposit should be returned and whatnot. I'm sure we've all had that conversation in our lives. It wasn't even on move outs. We were just right. free act, whatever, proactively returning the deposits and not touch those things. No, I think that yeah. was a great strategy and moving forward, I'm sure you and countless other individuals who watch this use moving fees here in Chicago. Yeah, we, we started doing that in like 2014 and never, never looked back. Then we get going the next year, 2016, working on renting out the units. And sure enough, they were even more below market than we thought. Like on California, we, it has, it's a mix of three bed, two bath units, or maybe three bed, three bath. I don't remember. And then two bed, two baths. And so on the three beds, like I said, they're getting 21 and 2200 on those. And then we end up renting out one for 2575 with parking first. And they're like, wow, this is really, Great. And then we, to rent the next one, we're like, let's see what we can get. Let's try to break that record. And we rented it for 2,700 bucks. So, and one thing that's nice too, when we're talking about with the rent increases, like probably normally half your building turns over anyway. So it's not, I don't recall any tough conversations with people where they really wanted to stay and then they couldn't cause of price. And oftentimes what we'll, we really all the time what we do is if they want to stay and it's price, we'll meet in the middle. And then, cause it's in everyone's best interest to just get a renewal and then they can, as a landlord, you can save on some turnover and leasing costs. And for the resident, obviously moving's a pain and they're happy to stay. Another, another thing I've realized too, in these deals, most of the time, the tenants knew they had a really good deal. They, I remember vividly on actually the first deal I bought here, we, someone was like a thousand dollars below market. And when we talked to them about it, they were like, we knew this day would come like, shows over like they knew they had a deal i mean they were renting a brand new basically three bed two bath in wicker park for 2200 bucks and but should have been th at the time probably 3150 now today it's 3500 dollars if you hit it at the right time but we set out in california then and same thing on the two beds those were all renting for 1700 and i thought we'd probably get like 2000 bucks for those but that's a huge spread obviously. And when we were actually under contract to buy it, one of the two beds came up and they're like, what do you want us to do? And like, well, let's put it up on the market for like 1975. Let's see what happens. And it rented like right away. And I was like, wow, we're really onto something. This is going to be a great deal. And so end up raising the rents at California 20% in the first year, move the monthly rent roll from 11,375 to 13,000. 600 and was there any cost to that move just like just leasing and turnover we didn't we didn't renovate the building or do anything 
pretty common for us to repaint the hallways and keep the property up better. You got to give people something what they're paying for. And then I got really believe if they see like a nice hallway or property, then they treat it better. But no, that was just what the market was. And, and what you did at Palmer, for instance, like you flip all the outlet, their uniform to GFCI and. Or at least in terms of the, the color that right. where we, this other deal that Jordan's talking about, we bought it in 2019 and 2018. And they, they, that one was a bit older than these. So then that you could actually do a unit refresh. Right. And then what Jordan's talking about, as I showed him a picture of my list on the unit refresh, all the things to do and includes tiny stuff like replacing a yellow outlet with a white colored one. That's what he's talking about. Branding and uniformity. It's, it's important. For your product. And on the, on the Palmer deal, that that's a good example of something that we do. And it's like that building, the had carpet in the bedrooms, the paint's like a yellowish white and really hadn't been taken care of. Everything's dirty. The appliances are dented, but it's like a 10 year old building and nice units. And that one, we did a similar thing where I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we did similar type rent increases, but also did a unit refresh. We took the carpeting out of the bedrooms, went with vinyl. Same strategy. It just seems to yeah. keep working for you over and over again. And then we got, we painted it like a nice light gray, which is the same color that's in here. Like once it, once it's working, why switch it? So, right. and then same thing over at Kedzie, just kind of maybe we'll speed this up a bit, but we, we raised the rents 11 and a half percent the first year over there. Just the same thing. The market was, the rents were going up, but maybe the market rent growth was like two or 3% that year. But this is just about, we saw an opportunity, it was rented too cheaply. And then we, we just started executing our business plan. And we don't, at this point, the rents aren't fully to market. Cause like I said, if somebody wanted to stay, we would have met them halfway. Or we're also working while we're doing this on getting the leases to all end in the prime months in Chicago. That's really from like the real prime months. It's May to August, but so any, but anything from April to September is fine, but you get into anything from. October to March and you're, you're sort of dead. Like some of these rents would be 20% below market on a walk-up kind of building, like these neighborhood deals. No, I totally agree. One thing when trying to, I mean, back in 2018, 2017, 2019, those years you absolutely had to set up your lease expirations between pretty much March 31st and September 1st. That's, that's such a big strategy that a lot of owners don't really think about because you want to expire all of your leases, maybe not even in the same month, maybe one, one at a time, maybe yeah. two at a time, but having that planned out ahead of time gives you enough time to a release the unit while they're there and then hopefully save on vacancy right. costs and then B hopefully you get them to stay. I mean, that's really right. The goal. And so as part of what we're doing on all the renewals is we're offering a new rate. We're also offering a, a different lease expiration. A lot of the reason that the rent stayed low in part on these deals was they were, the leases were rolling in like December and January and they had like a lot of new year's day, like lease leases. Then when we get that, we go, great. Here's a seven month renewal. Then you get to end at the end of July. We're flexible. If you want to do a different term, we just want to end between May and September. If you want to do like a year and a half, five months, six months, that's fine. Like we, we like to have everything here and usually no one even asks a reason, but if it is, it has to do with turnover. Like we want to do our turnovers in the summer. Who wants to move in the winter anyways? Like that's the reason we 2017 hits. We, we bought these at the end of 2015. When you do these deals, you think of them like sequentially by year, our year one on the spreadsheets closed out 
once we go through the leasing season of 2016. And as we're going into year two, we want to, we want to hit one more leasing cycle and get the rents fully to market this time. Cause in some of them, we didn't quite get them to market. And then we actually kept renting them for higher as we kept going. Like at California, I thought we could get 2000 for the two beds. We got it easily. Then I said, let's go for 2100 and we got it easily. Then we're all thinking we should be getting 2200. Then the next year we go out and we rent two of them for 2225. And then two of them stayed at 2100. So those might've been renewals. One unit on here is flat. Then same thing on the next, on the three beds, we rented the first one for 2575 and realized that wasn't market yet. And we rented the other one for 2775 the next year. So we kept going and anyways, all in, in total, we raised the rents between the purchase in 2015 to where we were at in 2017, we raised the rents 30% on California. And then we went and over to Kedzie, same story. That one, we raised the rents less, but we raised the rents on that one in total over those two years, 17 and a half percent. And some of that, like it's a, like that was sort of baked into the price a little bit though, where one thing I should mention, cause I talked about the, I think the stabilized cap rate when we, where we're at on the lender underwriting in 2015, but we're looking at these deals, like where are we going to get them to? Not so much what's today's cap rate. The market cap rate at the time was 6.0, let's say. On both deals, we paid a 5.6 cap. We paid a really aggressive cap rate for what was there, but we knew you get these rents to market. And the term for that is mark to market. And I say that a lot on the podcast, especially when we talk about Phoenix, because they're going through something like what we're talking about now, just in the whole place where they rent something one year, then the next year rents are up 20% and everybody's way below market. And you're doing the same exercise we're talking about here at the every year down there. And a lot of the cap rates on that, they're real aggressive, but once you raise the rents, they're reasonable. And you're actually at a cap rate. That's like what you'd find in like a Midwest state. You just compliment so, Chicago right there. I must have not been paying attention. You what what did I say? You were just, you were alluding to Phoenix being similar yeah. to Chicago because I think one thing that a lot of people forget is that early 2010s, 2011, 2012, it was hard to find anyone living outside of Lincoln Park, Lakeview, yeah. Gold Coast, Reederville, River North. And it's kind of similar to the macro level of the nation because a lot of people were focusing on the main capital markets. And in the past five or six years, the growth has been in the secondary and tertiary markets, similar to like Chicago, in that a lot of the growth in Chicago has been in the smaller neighborhoods that originally right. were, were kind of looked over. That's it all kind of circles back to your original strategy and the same thing you're doing today and everything that you started five right. years ago, it, it all kind of circles back to that. We're just, we're implementing a similar strategy to somewhere else with the, where there's just every deal has some element of this, this that's, that's right. And especially 2010 to like 2015, there were a lot of stories in Chicago about how much the downtown population was growing, just not only in the up and coming neighborhoods, but even just in the, in the loop and river North where. I remember Steve Fifield wrote an article for Cranes, just like an op-ed that they published. And it was something like 25,000 new people are moving downtown. By his math, we need like 12,000 new apartments and we're only building six. Like we're not building enough. Came prepared. From 2017, 2018, and 2019, on average, there was 4,000 new units delivered downtown. For 2020, 2021, and 2022, the average is 2,500. There's a substantial gap from where we were a few years ago where chicago was the darling child of the investment world 
and now where there's not enough supply being built. I know. And then the inflation's ramping up. Could inflation's be... ramping up. And, and now everyone <clears throat> in Chicago is thinking, wow, this could be a great time for growth here and great time for rent growth. And, right. And we're still we're still a six cap market. Right. That that'll be really interesting because Chicago just thanks to the property taxes, I guess, that it's one of the highest cap rate markets that I've see out there right now. And it's just I think it's because of the property tax risk, not so much because of rent growth. Of but we can see we can do a whole podcast on how property taxes work too I, here. I think we that, spend a lot of time yeah. discussing this, don't we? I had somebody off Twitter send me something where he wanted he's like, You should do one on that. Uh, property tax is in Cook County, and then how do cost tags work? Sure, too. but at the same time, it's it's the it's the gamble. Would you rather have a higher cap rate with unexpected taxes? But there there's plenty of quantitative and qualitative evidence that goes into where these assessments come from, or would you take a lower cap rate with rent growth? Right, and it really depends on what your plan is. And I actually was talking to somebody yesterday who they were a potential investor. Someone else who also does real estate, but could invest as a limited partner. And he, he was telling me basically what his strategy was and asking me, what do you think I should do? And he really wanted cash flow. And I told him you should just buy a deal on your own in Chicago because he lives here and he's, he's a, he's a residential broker. It's not, that's like in his wheelhouse to do. And then, or you could invest with somebody who's doing apartments, but in a cash flow market, Indiana, Michigan, somewhere where cap rates are high and you have the cash flow. I do those two things, or if you want, you could do pref equity in somebody's deal. So that's kind of like debt, if you will, but it, you put an equity in the project, but you just get a predetermined interest rate. Sometimes that's paid currently, meaning like during the month or year that how you would think the interest would be due in the current year, or it accrues, so then it just builds up. And then that's all the interest or part of the interest that accrued that's paid on refi or sale. I was like, those are the three ways to go about it. Like if you want cash flow, right, these markets in the South, they're not they're not for cash flow. But that's where those are the but it's the place where I was talking to a debt guy on Sunday and he had a client who bought an apartment building in Phoenix for twenty million dollars. Relatively recently, it was like twenty fifteen. They're doing a refi and it just appraised for a hundred and twenty million. That's what you're in Phoenix for. No cash Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. That, Fair but enough. that went through an unprecedented cap rate compression in rent growth and black swan event with COVID and like everybody, not everybody, many people leaving California to go to Phoenix. So then that's a one, maybe a moment in time, one thing, but that you're not in these markets for cash flow. This, these are also, these are trading markets. It's interesting. I would, I would suspect in a place like Phoenix or a lot of the like Dallas and Florida, the average hold time of a deal is probably like two years. We're in Chicago. I see these deals sell and they like never come up for sale again. It's like stocks. I think we have this conversation a lot that a LA Phoenix, you're, you're making money on the sale. You're not making money during the ownership. Then stocks you're talking, it's like either income or growth stocks. Or right. Income the, or growth stocks. Right. And with our strategy. And I mean, I live in Chicago and this, so I would want to do deals locally, at least at the, the time that we set out fest or, I guess to jump forward to the end of 2017, we raised the rents like we talked about. I actually, the property taxes, we will touch on that. I don't have it in front of me how our appeals went, but I would imagine every three years, if you're in Cook County, which is the county Chicago's in, they give you, they reassess your property. They can reassess it every year if something happens, like you build a new building or you pull permits and do a major renovation 
or there, but so we've owned the, we own the building from 2015 to 2021. I would, we for sure did at least two appeals. I'm, I'm sure of, cause we would have been reassessed at least twice. So that, that was something we were doing along the way. And yeah, it's one thing that's just surprising with Cook County is a lot of these deals will underwrite the taxes go up certain to so do a certain percent of the, of the total income. And that's based on other math that our property tax attorney is giving us. And many times the taxes never get up to that amount. And we, and we, and it's just, it's, there's not a lot of rhyme or reason. I mean, we had one deal that we bought and we paid 3.3 million bucks for it, not these in 2014. We raised the rent. It's the same business plan as this. We raised the rents. They were 2,200. They should have been 3,000. We did that. And then it was a condo project that we bought eight units. Then in the assessor, they view apartment buildings here less value. They're less valuable than a condo, just like apples to apples per foot per unit. But we put the property on one pin, get it reclassified as an apartment building. Okay. And the pin, that's the tax ID number eight, the condos, there would have been eight pins for each condo. And then maybe for the parking spots, two pins. And then we, we did it. This is not hard to do. I just like signed like one paper and we, they're all on one pin now, poof. We want to get it on one pan and then get it with the apartment classification. We did that. And when we bought it, we thought for sure our taxes are going to go like to at least what we paid. Cause we're buying this thing for three, three, we're making it worth 4 million. Taxes were assessed in like the mid twos when we bought it. And we assume they're going way up taxes assessed. Like it's two point, let's say $2 million value. We appeal, it drops to like one six. Like, so there's not a lot of rhyme or reason sometimes on this, but, and I don't have the assessed value in front of us, but we had, I have the annual financials ran across by the years and it's actually pretty, pretty steady until the last couple of years where it did, it did go up. But then we not, maybe not much to write home about on these with the taxes, but 2017, we finish out that leasing cycle and we go, Hey, we were doing the three, one, zero, zero, zero prepay. What we would have been 16, 17. I don't have the closing month on the refi. We either paid one point or zero because we're right at the end of year two. But at the end of 2017, you get an appraisal, obviously, when you refinance in California, we paid 1.65 million for that property. And the refinance appraised value was 2,390,000. It's a 45% increase in value. And then we were able to, with that appraised value, put a $1,912,000 loan on the property. Keep in mind, we paid 1,650,000 for it. We were able to get all of our original money back plus an additional 262,000. And then that's just money we're ready to go buy more deals with. Obviously you got to pay interest on that. There wasn't much cash flow from there. Having a property that you bought for a million six, five and just put a million loan for a million nine on it. But I guess I'm still young, but I was young in 2017. I want to grow the portfolio. I'm fine with that. And the higher rents and income support paying that mortgage is not that that's California. And then over on Kedzie, similar story. Percentages aren't as high, but is equally as exciting. We bought that for 2.65 million. As I've mentioned, the refinance appraised value was 3.33. I'll say that differently. 3,330,000, a 26% increase. And the loan we put on it was for 2,660,000, more than we paid. Not as good on Kedzie, I guess is what we did there. Pretty good. No, no, I'm just kidding. That, that, then that sort of, that was the business plan. We set out to, to execute it. We did over the years, I've learned a ton about how to, how to do these and to circle back on some of the 
high points like that stuff I didn't know at the start and now I do I'm was real confident these rents I didn't know how high we would get and we did surprise ourselves how high they got but I knew they were low and I knew we were going to pull money out of the deal and then that that's why I wanted that most flexible prepay that's why I was trying to use chase because it was a a super cheap loan because it was variable rate then this a low rate but it could change and a very low prepay we just actually i don't think we had the money of whatever we refied out where we couldn't have put the 30 percent down without adding money and then i would have preferred to get into a third deal which i did we bought 1353 west Bryn Mawr with the remaining money later that year but that that's a big lesson that i really want to hammer home where you got to match up your loan we've done some debt podcasts too but where you really that's here's the example of like how to match up your loan with your business plan where i literally switched lenders because i'm like i needed this flexible prepay can't get it here with the ltv i need and then i'm going and i would have and it's the number one thing i'm probably thinking about this is almost like the the prepay going in you're going to have the loan for a year or two the interest rate is not it's important but it's more important to let's say not have a yield maintenance loan where your prepay is 20 percent or a normal step down where it's five four three two one and those are in the order of the years we refied in year two or three I, instead of paying four or three percent i paid one or zero download our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook today accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the invest now button on our website now back to the show let's see what else we got so we kept the buildings then after you throw those big loans on it you're not there's not much cash flow and not much going on we went out and then with this money we bought what would have been the next deals seminary 13 33 11 seminary 1440 north noble would have been when we put this money in which those deals we've refied our money too and then this also with this initial three million dollars we bought kept rolling it into we got it into 30 million of property total and got the money back at the end to the to the investor right so, and i think that's circling back to other podcasts and one eye is that these investments, they're all meant to your strategy the entire time is this is what we're going to do in five years. We'll take the money out or four years or three years. We'll refinance out, use that money to buy more properties. Right. And as we got better, I realized you could do that in a year or two. And then this where you want to pick that prepay. And that's why it's important to understand what your strategy is, because that can help you lever your business up. And that's how you did. Yep. And then fast 2017 to 2021, we. We had just like the normal whatever Chicago rent growth would be. That that run of time was pretty flat in terms of the rent growth. They didn't, the rents didn't go down or anything in total. I mean, with the COVID, with 2020, they dropped, but 2021, we got them back to where they were. But then we've had the properties, let's say in 2021, we would have had them for already five years at that point. And we're thinking, okay, what should we do? with these and we, we were interested in taking some chips off the table. Like I would like personally to be investing more money individually in the deals I'm doing in, in Phoenix. And for me, I'm looking at what, what makes sense to sell. And the reason we opted, we sold these two buildings at the end of 2021 in, an, in another building. And really the reason we picked them was just because of what our prepay was at the time. On these refinances, I did a, the standard step down of five, four, three, two, one prepay. And we, we were real far into those loans. We were in the last year or at the one or, or the, the two, I guess I would have to do the math out, but I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but they, 
these compared to some of our other deals had low prepays. And for us, they they're now they're at a, like a smaller size where we're not all our deals are 25 or 30 million, but some of them are, then it's okay to sell like a two or $3 million building. If that's what you're, you're up to, I would, I guess I did say we wanted to take some chips off the table and what I like, I'll back up on that a little where I, my thought is like reallocate the money. I should say where I don't, I, I would say one thing I learned early on is actually like, if you can afford to never take your chips off the table. I sold the three unit that I owned in Madison when I was first starting in my career and I didn't buy another deal with that money. It just sort of got mixed in with my other money and I don't have anything to really show for it. Meanwhile, a deal, the other deal I owned in Madison at the time I kept, I owned, and it was actually when I, at the time of sale out of those two deals, the one I kept was the worst of the two. I kept that for 10 years and the, I increased the, I improved the property quite a bit, but I ended up, I bought that for 670,000 and sold it for a million two, two, 10 years later, did a 1031 into 1433 North Cleaver, 1300 North Greenview. And I went from having a $600,000 three unit to $4 million of property in Chicago, just keeping the money in place. We did sell and we were not doing a 1031 with these, but my plan is just to get this money into, into our new deals as quick as possible. And I think a lot of people don't under, who don't understand multifamily investing and apartment investing is that the families who have grown into these quote unquote monopoly size real estate empires, they've done that through the same tactic that Drew's speaking of right now, which is selling their smaller buildings, buying larger buildings. And the reason why you keep doing that is for depreciation and the appreciation that you get from purchasing the new building and right. the tax write-offs that come with depreciation. Uh, and to, to highlight the thing Jordan's talking about with depreciation, right? If you, you own, let's say, an apartment building, you're depreciating that over 27 and a half years. Some of these families, they've literally owned them for 27 and a half years or more, and they're out of depreciation. You can sell the property, do a 1031 tax deferred exchange, not pay any of your taxes yet on, on your capital gain or depreciation recapture, get into a new deal and you, you, you start off, you don't get the full depreciation on the new deal. You have, there's a deduction then that's beyond me. It's like, you need a CPA you. for this, but no, you, you take the, whatever you sold your building for and the new purchase price, you subtract that. And that is your new depreciation for the new asset. That's where your new, new tax base is nice. Then that, that's a strategy I see plenty. Another thing too, it's with the refis, how a lot of these families built these huge portfolios is a 1031. There is a bit of risk in that where you're selling. Now you need to find a new deal identified in 45 days after closing, close it 180 days after closing your sale. All those timelines run simultaneously. But with the, what's really nice with the refis, if you're okay, putting more debt on the property, you're taking that out tax-free. There's no timeline on redeploying that money. You just, it's up to you. You can wait to find a good deal. So great, great points. But then fast forward to 2021, we, we already had pulled all our money out and then some on these deals and had the money out of the next deals even. And then we looked to sell. So we came to Jordan and we, let's see where do we want to pick it up. I mean, I got a BOV from, from you and another broker. What, any, anything, anything you want to say on that? Sure. Uh, we competed with someone you're very familiar with, someone we very much respect very highly. The reason why I feel that you chose us is because what makes our company, Essex Realty Group, a little bit different is that we divide and conquer. We're all in charge of different geographic neighborhoods without 
throughout the city, for instance. And my team and the group that I was a part of, we specialize in Logan Square. I felt that you chose us because we have the divide and conquer route. We all work together to find the best buyer for your property. One thing that's super important that you chose to do that some people don't is that you chose to market the properties. And the most important facet of that is that we wouldn't have had our buyer if we didn't market the properties. Right. A few years ago, I could have given you a short list of the five most likely buyers for these properties. And it circles back to a main point I'm about to make is that right now in Chicago, we have so much fresh blood and many new investors looking to get in. Debt is cheap right now and there's great cap rates in Chicago. It drew the ultimate buyer for these properties to the prop to the property because we cast the widest net and we marketed the properties. Right. And so, and that, that is a big reason why I chose you and Essex for these, where you've specialized in this area. I mean, where talking to you, who bought every building in the area, like that's where you're covering. And then Essex too, what they do a good job of is they get everyone at the company works on the listing where a lot of firms, it's just the, that broker, or oftentimes it's a team, but it would be, let's say two or three brokers are working on your listing where at Essex it feels like literally the whole company's working on it. Yet they do it in a way where they don't have, it's not like the same buyers getting three phone calls about the same property as well. It's set up nicely. Right. There's no exclusivity that we have. We all, we all post or distribute the property at the same exact time. We as a company are competing amongst ourselves to find that right and the best buyer for the property. And we feel that strengthens our, our job, excuse me, that helps us find the best buyer always because you don't have just one group looking for the buyer for your property. You have the entire company and that is an important thing about how we operate and the success that we have for our clients. Right. And I think, and when you mentioned what I, what we did was we marketed the property. Why don't you tell us what you meant by that? There's a lot of different ways to sell a property. For instance, some, some owners preferred not to cause ruckus within their buildings. They don't like to let the tenants know that they're choosing to sell and they decide to sell something off market, for instance, an off market transaction simply means that the property is being shown to maybe one, two, three, four people at one time. And what that does though, is that that puts the, the strength of this, of the deal essentially in the buyer's hands, because the seller is essentially only seeing a few offers. He doesn't know what the full market is. The difference being is that when you put something on the market and you expose it to everyone, you are, you're essentially assuring yourself that every single stone has been unturned. Every single group of eyes that should be seeing your property are seeing it. And then when you're presented with a grouping of offers, what your market is, if you don't do that, then how do you, that's your market. Right. And another thing too, even if what I find interesting is even if let's say you have that list of four buyers, let's say hypothetically, and even if for some reason those were the best four buyers, you want to know how to get the best way to get their price up, do like 20, 30 other tours and get other offers in. And now there's more activity on the property. And even if that short list that you had would be, would have the buyer on it, they're much more willing to push price and terms and everything because this sounds really competitive. As, as a buyer, personally speaking for both of us, I, I would assure you that we both would confidently say that we'd rather buy something off market. 
we rather sell something on market because you want to make sure you're getting the highest and best price. That is the true the, the true reason why you decide to sell is because you want to make sure of that. You want to assure your, your investors of that. And you can't do that if you only have two or three people looking at your property. Right. Well, then we, we get going on listing the property. We sign a listing agreement. And then what, how a common thing today is to not put a price on a property it's in the marketing package. It would have no price listed. And then you inquire with the broker about if there's any pricing guidance as a term or whisper price. These are the terms people use to give an indication of like, where do you think this would potentially sell or what is the seller trying to get? What's interesting with that kind of sidebar here is the whisper pricing, a lot of brokers do that differently. I've talked to some like in, in like in Texas, for example, whisper price, that's just kind of like, to get people interested in the door. If I tell you the whisper price is 40 million, it's probably about as going for 43, but I want to get, I want to get everyone excited about it. Where in other places, it's like a stretch number you can't hit. Like I'm going to whisper on that deal, 45 million and know the best one's going to be 43. Like that's, what's kind of, that that's a big trend though, with that nice, with that tangent there. But then what did, what did we do? Jordan price, no price. What, what was the strategy? We went out priced. I mean, from our BOV, I could accurately say that we went above the higher range of where we thought it would sell. We came out aggressive. And I think the first week we had five tours at each property. We had great feedback. I think a lot of the buyers were very interested in buying something that's turnkey where they don't have to do a lot of the renovation themselves, where they can see the same strategy that exists there. They employed yourself. They they have rents that they think we're going to grow. And uh, that was the story that we were kind of trying to sell here is that although the current owner has grown the rents significantly, we still think there's a lot more room here. And within the first two weeks, I think we had somewhere around five or six offers. And I think we were still far apart of what your expectation was at that time. We updated our, our sale price. We came down a little bit on our expectation to the, to the market. We exposed it to more and more buyers and we were fortunate enough to, to find our buyer who came to this area because he had a brother who owned a condo in Logan square. And he's originally from different state and he was looking to make his first investments in Chicago and chose this area because it was familiar with them. That's interesting. I didn't, I knew he was from out of state, obviously. I didn't know he, he had any connection to Logan then. In Logan yeah. Square. I, I, I don't know if I told you that before, but he, he had chosen this area because it was familiar to him. That's interesting. And yeah. he knew that there was upside. And then, and cause this is still an area that's improving a lot where there's still plenty of room for this to get imp improved to closer to some of these nicer neighborhoods that. Absolutely. Another example, back in 2015, I was selling a three flat on Logan Square. And at the time there, there were no million dollar homes in, in Logan. And one of the, one of the facets of the deal was like, this could be converted into one of the nicest single family homes in Logan. And no one could even grasp it at that time. Look at today, Logan Square has 71,000 residents and and probably some of the most million dollar sales to probably this year, just because so many people want to live in that neighborhood now. And especially right on Logan with the Boulevard. I mean, that's, there's a lot of, 
really nice houses that could be renovated or built there. Exactly. The boulevards are two of the most inviting factors of Logan Square, obviously. Right. Then we got, that's more offers than I remember. They, a lot, quite a few of them were, were low, or at least or they were good starting numbers, but they didn't have much room from there. So we, we countered everybody. One thing that I think is important personally, like, and I am surprised when others don't do it, is I, regardless of what the offer is, I think you should, a seller should counter. Right. If, if you're a real, or if, if you had something, just jump in. No, I, I, I think showing people a real target is helpful for all investors. I think, I mean, to circle back to going out on price, I think that's really done when it's a timeless asset that couldn't possibly be, be given a price to. Or even on a two and $3 million deal, I think people are still used to seeing a price. Right. I think the unpriced thing is in my head and yours, but when you really think about it, that's more on like seven plus million dollar deals, maybe usually even higher than that, where it, and then you're going to do a call for offers and it's a whole thing where still the deals that let's call it a million to 5 million, those are, there's a price and then there's not a, there's, it's like 50, 50, maybe if there's going to be a call for offers or not. Right. I, usually the deals that garner call for offers are, are very sought after value add deals where it's a low starting point to get in low barrier to entry a lot of upside in the round, similar to what you discussed, but more capital is being deployed. Right. Makes sense. It's something that's going to be real, real, real competitive. And I guess it's going to say, how do you pick our bar before I would get into that? Like one thing, I mean, this, we want to hammer home on this is with marketing the property where it was widely marketed to everybody. And then this buyer, had you ever talked to them before? This buyer actually reached out directly because he was interested in the property. He wasn't working with any agent or, a, or anything of the sort. And he, he knew that it was the best way for him to find opportunities is to just reach out to brokers. But the first time you talked to him, it was on Kedzie in California. Yes. That's what I'm trying to. First that, time I ever talked to him, he reached out, interested in the properties, and I started to interview him about, about them. Because that's what's important, where this was someone that none of us knew in another state and end up being the buyer. Right. Usually that's, as they say, a red flag. He was present the entire time. He had shown up. He was very thorough. He did a lot of things on the front end to show that he was very much interested in the deal. And I spent a lot of time, obviously, with him, getting him ready and prepared for what the due diligence was going to be like. And unlike unlike me, he closed on time. He didn't need to he didn't, didn't need an extension. Well, one of the most helpful things that I could suggest for any seller or anyone in real estate is to have organization with all of your documents. I mean, one of the best things about working with Troop personally is that as soon as we start going, I have every single bill, rent roll, whatever I need is all in the digital war room prior to going to market. It's easy for us to just sell a property for someone like Drew because we have real expenses, real numbers. And we can stick to those numbers and use quantitative evidence right. why someone should be able to pay X number the same way that you have in the past. Right. We need to give Tom Stein a shout out then because that I did. Shout out to Tom. Because I did, I did not. We did deliver everything in Dropbox right away, all electronically. And anytime someone needs anything, but that I, I did, I did nothing on that personally. That was all. Thank you, Tom. Right. To circle back to the buyer, first time meeting him, we spent a great amount of time together. I discussed what his financing was going to be. 
but did he need an attorney? I really got to work with him for every step of the process and help him with attorney, with the proper lender, with strategy, with operations here. It was a good experience because it was someone who was eager to learn and eager to grow their business similar to the way that you have. And then, because I think some of the vendors he used, you had said you referred, like was which attorney, yeah. inspector, something like that. I gave him a list of referrals for everything. He chose his own on each, which I totally respect right, as should, well. Of course. And I respect the reason why he chose his property manager, why he chose his attorney. I think those are important. I think those reasons why he, he chose an attorney, for instance, who he had a lot of good feedback from. He chose a property management company that didn't have over a thousand units under management. Yes, he no chose someone more personal, more boutique. I think all of those things are important when you're looking into what your strategy is going to be for your purchase. But then that's a credit to you. I mean, that you have those resources available because if also, if you didn't, he's a new buyer, then he's going to go, oh, I don't know what attorneys to talk to or what inspector to use and be maybe he's less, less likely to write an offer or really get, get the deal signed up because he doesn't, he, he feels like I need to do more homework where instead of you're giving him, here's three names, just they're all like references. I would try them out to see who you like out of the three. And if he sees an attorney he liked out of the three, then it'd be comfortable work moving the deal forward. So you did a nice job with that. Right. One of the most important and overlooked things about being a broker is passing good information on. And I think a lot of people forget about that, that we are really advisors and resources to whoever we work with throughout the process. And I mean, it's just as much fun working with someone for the first time as it is working with someone who knows a lot more than you, for instance. It's, this is a people business at the end of the day and how agreeable or easy to work with you are is probably a lot, it's probably gonna help you with your success in this business. Right. I mean, I, I believe Joe said it, you're just trying to get people to like you and just understand, Essentially, my biggest job, in my opinion, outside of what we kind of just discussed is, is that we're supposed to convey that we are authorities in this matter, is that we have credibility, we do this every day, that whatever issue that's going to come up, we're ready to deal with. And that's how we think. I like these callbacks to past episodes. Jordan's been a very engaged uh, viewer of the podcast. Appreciate that. Of course. I, I, I think... <clears throat> This, this podcast offers investors, buyers, people looking to get into the business, a lot of opportunities and insights that a lot of us didn't have. I'm a big fan of it. It's been interesting where I've, over, especially the last few years, I've been saying the same things over and over to people. And it's like, this is like, like this was to start shooting this, like, and get, get this on, let's say on tape, but get it, get it recorded get it out where more people can hear it. Some of these lessons around. If you quit your job, you can always go back to something similar or if you're trying to quit your job, get something going first. Like I quit, I had five buildings and I don't, it's a lot harder if you're going to quit and then start from scratch. My, my advice always is the same work nights and weekends for two, three years, get something built up. Then you're hitting the ground running versus just cold. All these things keep coming up or this thing with your prepay. And it's like, let's get this, let's get this out there. Cool. I appreciate the compliment. And I think just to let's wrap up maybe on how the Keds in California deals panned out for us. Kind of all in told, since we pulled much money out of California quickly, the the IRR on that deal was, was 45. And then on the Kedzie, 
that we delivered a 26.7 IRR. Those deals turned out great for us. And we, on Kedzi, we invested 600,000. And in total, we, we distributed 1.285 million. And then on California, we invested 400,000 and distributed 925,000. These are all rounded numbers, but that's, those are nice deals. And looking forward to getting that money into something here in the near future. Cause another thing I always tell people is like, if I don't do anything now with this money, like you just start, you need to get, like, I, I want to keep those chips in play. That's a big thing for me. I'm going to, we're going to get this into another deal, do something with the money. I think that's about it on those deals, but let's maybe let's talk more about anything else on these or on, on brokerage you want to touch on Jordan or I think the last note I'll have about Kelly and Kedzi sale is that anyone who's ever interested in buying a deal, definitely do definitely reach out to brokers. Definitely learn different perspectives about deals. Reach out to different bro probably similar things that you've been imploring in different states. If you're really interested in investing in Chicago and wherever you are, talk to the brokers, find out what's moving the market, what's interesting, and then trying to create your team, create your strategy and pick the right people to do it with. For sure. Like just how you were able to get help with that buyer with those vendors. I mean, there's, if you, if you don't get those referrals and you, you should start out getting those early on where you want to have an idea who might be your property manager, who might be your attorney, should you get going on a deal? Is that exactly? Point? I mean, if we, if if the buyer, for instance, had to took a week and a half to pick their attorney, that that already puts us at a delay, and we're not closing on time. For instance, right. a lot of these things are finding the right person for what your strategy is at the end of the day, and just meeting as many people as possible because you're never gonna find the right person for you and unless you meet as many people as possible. Great. Well, great. Well, you did a nice job in these Jordan. I mean, it's a really good process and it got closed on time. I mean, nice kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. No, it was great to work with you. It was great to work with the buyer. As I said before, Chad was great. Anthony was great. There was a lot of back and forth during certain aspects of the deal, but I think at everything, at the end of the day, everything closed smooth. And I think you have two happy people. And Chad and Anthony, those are the attorneys. They did a great job. Yep. Definitely. I think that wraps it up on Kedzie in California on those deals. One thing I wanted to ask you is just a little bit about building your business. I know you've been doing brokerage for a while, but really not that long. What, what are either some like things you've learned kind of as you've started and really grown your career or what any sort of lessons you can give people on brokerage? The number one advice I would give to someone would be to find a mentor when exactly what's, what sort of real estate you want to do. For instance, if you want to do net lease, if you want to do retail, if you want to do office, Finding those stars in the industry, as they say, finding those people who are, have the experience, who've been doing it their entire lives, or who've been doing it for a while, and you see them and know that they're successful, reach out to them. Those are the people that you want to connect with, the people who do it better than you, or the people that you aspire to be one day. Find a mentor, and then picking a firm is very important. We've spoken a lot about having a strategy, having a niche. I was really drawn to multifamily because that was, that was the niche that I thought was going to be something that would be stable for the rest of my life. Find a mentor. Find a mentor, find the right firm for yourself, and then immerse yourself in your subject matter. The thing that has helped me the most in my business has been truly understanding every single building, every single street, every single block in your market. I, I am someone who came from doing a niche business. I sold 
I helped procure logistics for refrigerated freight, for instance. That was my my niche now is that I sell multifamily in Wicker Park, Logan Square, West Town. That's my niche. I sell properties all over the city, but all I do is apartment buildings. So when someone calls, right. when I call, when I call an owner, for instance, all I do is sell apartment buildings. I'm not here to sell your condo. I'm not here to sell your right. Telecom. Right. And you focus in a certain price range roughly too. Like it's, it's like exactly known what you're working on. Exactly. Just defining your market, defining what you're, you're going to do, connecting with every single person in that market, giving them feedback, giving them updates about what's happening. It's really, it's really sales. Yep. At the end of the day, it's sales and it's communicating with people. It's establishing credibility, which is the number one thing that we do and being a resource for people really. And as a new broker, what would be some tips or not, not for you, I'm not saying you're the new broker, but for someone just starting out and they're going up against somebody like you or someone even more experienced, what could they, what could they do to build credibility? Let's say they've never, they've not sold a similar building. What, what would you advise? Really understanding the person that you're about to meet with, the, the business focus of that person and being very prepared and ready to engage that person about the business and showing them that you care and that you're deeply invested in what they're doing. It's a perfect segue is that that's how I met you, Drew, is that I reached out to you and we met at Florial and I had a list of all the properties that you had purchased within the past five years. And we, I just started asking you about them. I wanted to understand what your strategy was and you have to listen. You have to hear what they're saying and you have to, you have to remember that and you have to implore it kind of circling back. I knew not to call you about something that you wouldn't be interested in. Right. I think that's a huge lesson that every broker should know is that we all have limited time throughout the day. I mean, brokers, yeah, we have tons of time to make calls or deal with whatever's coming up within the deal, but principals, people who are out in the field, they don't have a lot of time. Make sure that you're valuing their time and they'll appreciate that right that's that's really really good advice yep and something else too that i would add where and i don't naturally do this it's funny this is coming from me but like you're you you say call about the deals that you think that would be a fit for them not just with every deal but also somehow i mean you want to establish rapport with them and try to create a, like some camaraderie or commonalities i'm sure but somehow in a way like you you don't want to get a reputation of like each phone call is going to be a long time because then if you're busy and someone's really brief, it's a lot easier to answer the call and go, he's got something he thinks would be interesting. We'll probably talk for five minutes. But if it somehow ends up always being like an hour, that that ends up being something that you'll you run into. And I'm naturally, I talk for a long time. Like it's, that's not, I don't, a lot of my phone calls are more than five minutes. It's funny. I'm, I'm one to talk with that advice, but that I've noticed too, the people that do really well. They somehow, they, they still ask about your, your kids. It's more than just, Hey, I got this thing for sale, but they'll, they still have like a talk, but then it's not, it's not 25 minutes. It's like, you look at it and it's like, oh, that was actually a six minute phone call. And we kind of touched on personal business, this thing he's got coming up and then, it, but then we just get off the phone. Right. So and I agree. I think it's very important at the end of the day. I think one thing that a lot of people get in the weeds about is that we all grew up thinking that there's this client's business person relationship. At the end of the day, people that we all want to do business with is the people that we like. And I think that's a bad stigma. The opposite of that is that you have to be very polished or businessy 
to make people like you. That's the first thing from the truth. I've found the best success in this business is just caring, being thoughtful. Right. And what you just said before is that we can have a conversation in five minutes. And right. at the beginning of our relationship, I, I could honestly say I called you a lot more. I mean, we probably talk once every few weeks about things that are very important. And then we email and exchange and do everything else that we need to do in, in between that time yeah. because I value. I know that you're traveling and I, I know what you're up to. I don't need to talk to you every single day. That's definitely spot on about people wanting to do business with people that they like. The other, other about a month ago, I remember tweeting something like that where under, it was like something effective, like underrated skill in business being likable. Well, and you also have to just be genuine. I mean, we're, we're all, we're all working hard to, to be successful in this world, but the more that you care about others, the more that it comes back to you, in my opinion. I, I've found that the less I care about what happens to me in the deal, the more enjoyment I have doing business because we're, we're procuring a buyer, we're connecting a buyer and a seller. You want that to exchange to be a positive one for both sides. That's more important to me than just making a check. What I mean, yeah. because we're trying to create a career out of this. Like this is, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. I like meeting new people every day. I like trying to win people over every day. It's fun. And if you're not having fun doing what you're doing, then you shouldn't be doing it. Right. And for you, you focus on the transactions going well and a good buyer-seller experience. That's what you're really focused on. From the moment that you meet me, it is my job to give you a great experience. From the moment that I tore you through that building, from the package that we give you, we want to convey good information first and foremost and give you as much information on the front end so you can make the best decision possible. That's what being a good broker is yeah. in my opinion. And I, I really, I really agree with that. Where in a lot of these deals, like I don't, I mean, I said what the IRRs were, I actually don't even recall like what my share is on this deal, like the dollars, but I'm most happy that we, a 45 IRR, that's our highest IRR far. We refied out like 140% of the money on the California, like at, I mean, that's, that to me, like that is the accomplishment that I like even more than like whatever I received on that, just executing that where we set out, you thought you would do it. You put this flexible prepay on and then we exceeded it. Like that is what I like the most to you. That's the deal closing smoothly. People being happy with the price on both sides. And, and, and but like, let's stop and not, not get a twist in the fact that that's not to say that there's not hiccups or things that come up along the way. That's what makes this all enjoyable. In my opinion is the, is the shortcomings, the pitfalls, the things that you don't plan for being, being maneuverable and being able to tackle these things as they come up will lead to a lot of your, your enjoyment in this business. Instead of dreading whatever comes up, look at it as a new opportunity to learn something about yourself every day, for instance. That's great advice. Well, let's, let's wrap it on that. Thanks for being on Jordan. How can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about Chicago Parm Billings. You can always reach me by cell phone. My number is 847-533-1219. If you want to email me, Jordan Moltak at Essex, E-S-S-E-X, realtygroup.com. Great. Thanks for being on, Jordan. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Drew. It was a blast. Until next time, everyone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, 
check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100-plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the Invest Now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.